Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Heart Matters. All right, so in Acts chapter 19, we have an intense spiritual battle that takes place in the city of Ephesus. And so while Paul was ministering in that city during his third missionary journey, and so uh, if you wanna know what time uh, frame in history this is in Acts 19, it's right around the mid 50s, not the 1950s, but AD, probably around AD 55 or so. Paul's on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus. He's ministering in that city. And there is a clash, a clash between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And what's at stake? Ladies and gentlemen, what's at stake is what is always at stake whenever there's spiritual warfare, and that is the souls of men, women, teenagers, boys and girls. And so there's a spiritual battle going on 2,000 years ago where we are today in our Bible, and we've seen this kind of spiritual warfare over and over in the book of Acts. We've likened it to a chess match, right? Remember this, God moves, Satan moves, God moves again, Satan moves again. And so if, if right now you're in a season of your life where it seems like Satan is moving, the enemy is moving in your life, I want you to be encouraged. I've read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and here's what I know. God gets the last move and Christ, in the end, he's gonna win. And everything's gonna be great. And that's, that excites me. Here's why, because the first Adam blew it and plunged our world into death and darkness. But thank God the second Adam came and Jesus Christ is the redeemer of the world and we're all gonna get back what was taken away and we're all gonna get back Eden. It's gonna be awesome. So get your focus where it ought to be. Get your focus on Christ. Get your focus on victory. And so concerning Acts chapter 19, God moves in the first half of the chapter, but then Satan moves in the second half of the chapter. Now, by way of quick review, how did God move in the first half of the chapter? Well, what we saw is that he opened a door for the Apostle Paul to teach for two wonderful years in the hall of Tyrannus. Do you guys remember this? So a door opened, Paul goes in for two years, he teaches the word of God, and there's an impact, not just in the city of Ephesus, but also in the entire province of Asia Minor. We know that as Western Turkey. <laughs> what an impact. First of all, his impact is in the city of Ephesus. And as we saw, as a result of the Holy Spirit working through Paul as he exalted Christ and taught the word, what we saw was that people in Ephesus began to confess and divulge their sinful practices. We saw that in verse 18. And then what we saw was that people began to burn their books about witchcraft and the occult. We saw that in verse 19. And then we saw that God's word began to increase and prevail mightily in people's lives. We saw that in verse 20. This is what you call revival. It's happening in the city of Ephesus, but not just an impact in Ephesus. The impact continues on into the rest of the province of Asia, and here's why. Because as Paul's teaching for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, the people sitting in the rows, like you guys, um, they didn't just listen and say, oh, nice sermon, pastor, and go away unchanged. 
These disciples actually went out and they taught others what they learned from the Apostle Paul. What does this look like on a map? I showed this to you last week, it was so good, I gotta show you again, all right? So the bottom left-hand side of your screen, if you see the city of Ephesus, please say amen. Okay, so this is where that clash, that spiritual warfare is going on. Paul's teaching in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. The disciples, not content to just learn from Paul, they go out and they began to share what they learned from the apostle Paul about Christ and his teachings in the whole province of Asia Minor, Western Turkey. And praise the Lord, this is what we believe was the impetus for many churches to eventually be planted in cities like Colossae, Laodicea, Aeropolis, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamos, and so on and so forth. God moving mightily in the first half of Acts chapter 19. But then Satan moves in the second half. Satan's move today that we're gonna see has to do with the sin of idolatry. Sadly, the sin of idolatry has really captured the heart of not millions, but billions with a B. Billions of people since Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden so long ago. And so concerning the sin of idolatry, God's word is very clear. How many of you guys know that, that God doesn't stutter, right? So here we go. Remember the, the, the big 10 commandments in your Bible? Here's commandment number one. God says, I am the Lord, Yehovah, otherwise known as Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In our passage today, we're gonna see 25,000 people disobey this commandment. But how many of you are glad that God always has a remnant? God always has a remnant of believers. And so you have Paul and you have the Christian disciples who are gonna stand strong and they're gonna absolutely obey this commandment. Okay, so before we see the enemy's counter move in verses 23 and following, we gotta make a quick pit stop and see Paul's heart, Paul's desire to follow the Holy Spirit in his life in verses 21 and 22. All right, and so right now, if you're looking at Acts 19, verse 21, say amen. Okay, so here we go. Now after these events, the events of the first half chapter, Paul's teaching ministry impacts the city and the province of Asia. After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. I really believe it, in our English Bibles at least, it should be capital S, Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, or Ephesus, for a while. And so I love the fact that whenever Paul made plans, he always sought the Lord for direction. Whenever Paul set his calendar, so to speak, he always did it in a prayerful way, a submitted way, a way in which he prayed to God 
four next steps. And that's what we see here. You know, his ministry in Ephesus, Paul knows, my ministry in this city is starting to wind down. And so he goes to the Lord, he begins to pray for next steps. Lord, what do you want me to do next? And the direction that he receives is that the Lord wants him to go from Ephesus, Asia Minor, cross the Aegean Sea, and go on up to Macedonia, that's northern Greece. And then the Lord wants him to go down to Achaia, that's southern Greece. And then the Lord wants him to go back down to Jerusalem, no doubt to take the offering that he's gonna receive from the Gentile churches in Greece to relieve the poor saints in Jerusalem. That's a whole other sermon. But, but the Lord leads him to go to Jerusalem. And then eventually the Lord wants him to go across Europe all the way to Rome. And what? Do we see, as we study the rest of the book of Acts, by the time we get to the end of this book, ladies and gentlemen, and by the way, I promise you we'll, we'll get there someday, all right? We're gonna see Paul's gonna go to Macedonia. Then he's gonna go down to Achaia. Then he's gonna go over to Jerusalem. And finally, not in the way he thinks, but as a prisoner of Rome, he's gonna end up in Rome by the time we get to the end of this book. Verse 21 says that Paul resolved in the spirit. He resolved in the spirit to go to these places. So what does that teach us? It's very applicable to our lives. It teaches us that the fact that Paul resolved in the spirit after he made his plans shows us that he involved the spirit when he made his plans. Why? Because the Lord was his God. When you have a God, you look to that God for direction in your life. So if you wanna engage in the message today, here's your first fill-in. If the Lord is your God, involve him when making plans, and when he gives direction, resolve to follow his plan. In other words, don't just say, hey, I'm gonna go here or there this year, and I'm gonna do this or that this month. That's not what we as Christians do. And so I'm just wondering out loud today, when you make your plans for the future, do you involve the Lord? And once you kind of get a sense of what God wants you to do, do you, like Paul, resolve in your spirit that you're gonna carry out those plans? Listen, if God is truly your God, if the Lord is truly your Lord, this is what we do, right? Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord of all? He's not Lord at all, right? So we look to the Lord, we seek his direction. And so because it's still January, right, we still got a chance to get this thing right in 2020. And so as you plan your calendar for 2020, you still have an opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, to get on your knees, to maybe fast and pray and seek the Lord as you set your calendar for this year. I'll say it again. Don't just say, hey, honey, in May, let's go to this city. And then in July, let's go over here. And then in September, let's do thus and so. We can't do that. Because God is our God. And how many of you know that God has the 30,000 foot view? We're down here on ground level. We can't see past the, around the corner of the building. But God sees it all. And God wants to direct your life. But if you don't include him, you're going to take a wrong turn. And you're going to mess everything up. 
Include the Lord in your plans. What does James have to say about this? He's more direct than I am. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James says, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, Christian, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is what? Evil. He's writing that to the Christian community. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please, let's involve the Lord in our plans. Don't say, I'm going here or there, I'm gonna do this and that. If you do that, James says you're showing arrogance and all such arrogance is evil. You say, okay, so what should I do as I look at 2020, as I look at the next day, the next week, right? The next month, the next year, what should I do? You should follow Solomon's advice. We all know these verses, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And so in 2020, I'll say it one more time. Make sure you involve the Lord when you make your plans. And then once you kind of understand what God wants you to do, then resolve like Paul in your spirit that you're gonna follow God's plan. All right, so now we're gonna see the enemy and the enemy's gonna counter move in the second half of Acts 19. He's gonna counter move on the chessboard of Acts against what the Lord has been doing in the city of Ephesus. All right, so look at now at verse 23, verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the what? The way. All right, everybody say the way. way. Okay, where does that come from? It comes from John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so the, the word the way is a way in the first century that they described Christianity. And so about that time, there arose no disturbance concerning Christianity or the way. Verse 24, for a man called Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So now we're introduced to the Greek goddess Artemis. The Romans, they called her Diana, Diana. And so in Greek mythology, among other things, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. She's greatly venerated throughout the whole Greco-Roman world during the first century. Now, personally, I don't know how anybody ever bows down or takes a knee before an idol, especially an idol as grotesque as that thing, all right? That's just like completely yuck, all right? So we're just gonna move on, take down her image right now. According, According to mythology, here's what, supposedly happened. It all started when Zeus took an image of his daughter Artemis and threw it from heaven to earth. Now, of course, they call it mythology, so we all know Zeus doesn't exist. So what actually happened was probably a meteorite fell to the earth, a lumpy meteorite. 
And so they ran over and they found this rock. And this thing fell from the sky and it either looked like or it was made to look like a multi-breasted woman. And so they took this, what they call in verse 35, this sacred stone and apparently they enshrined it in a temple. And from that day forward, Ephesus and the Ephesians became the temple keepers of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, as we see in verse 35. And so what temple did they enshrine this ugly stone in? They enshrined the ugly stone in the temple of Artemis. By the way, if you go to Turkey today, guess what? You'll see the remains, and by the way, that's just a small portion of this magnificent um, temple as it stood in the first century, but there it is. You can go to Western Turkey, and you can see the remains of this temple, which was discovered in 1869. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, we see archeology span supporting the stories in the Bible, proving both the authenticity and historicity of the biblical text. In other words, what we're reading today is not myth. This is historical narrative that's true. Archaeology over and over and over and over and over again continues to substantiate the stories of the Bible. And so here's a model of the temple of Artemis as it may have appeared during the first century. So it was made of marble, had 127 60-foot high columns. It was over 400, I think it was 450 plus feet long. So this temple of Artemis was longer than a city block. It was absolutely ginormous. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it brought lots of people from all over the Roman Empire to the city of Ephesus. And so they came. They came to see this temple. They came to see the image of Artemis. And they came to do some banking because as I dug into the history of this temple, I also found out that it was used somewhat like a bank and so people would actually go and they would make deposits in the temple of Artemis. Now in verse 24, it tells us that there's a silversmith, his name is Demetrius, and he decides to cash in on all the tourism there in Ephesus. So you got all these people around the Roman Empire, they're coming to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis and and Demetrius, the silversmith's like, hey, I can take advantage of this. I can make some big bucks. So what does he do? He begins to make, as a silversmith, little shrines of the temple of Artemis. Little shrines, little um, images of, of that goddess herself. And he begins to sell them to the locals and to the tourists who are coming into Ephesus. And apparently, these little silver shrines, they become a hot item to the place where Demetrius cannot keep up with the demand. And so what does he do? He goes out and he hires other silversmiths and other craftsmen to help him make all of these image. And ladies and gentlemen, these guys were making a killing. Business was great until a guy named Paul came to town. And Paul came to town and he faithfully taught God's word for two years. 
in the hall of Tyrannus. And what was the result? We've already seen it. As a result of the Holy Spirit working through Paul as he exalted Christ and taught the word of God, people began to come and confess and divulge their sinful practices. They began to burn their books about witchcraft and the occult. They began to allow the word of God to have a high, high place in their life. And, listen to this, and they stopped going to Demetrius to buy the little silver shrines of Artemis. And what happened? Demetrius saw sales were plummeting, and he got mad. He calls a meeting of all the silversmiths and all the craftsmen in Ephesus. He wants to rile them up to oppose Paul. And so we're gonna pick up the story now in verse 25, all right? So follow along. Verse 25, these, these craftsmen, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, all right, so here's Demetrius's speech. Men, you know that from this business, we have our, what's the word? Prosperity. Our prosperity, our wealth, right? Isn't it interesting how it always comes down to the almighty dollar? Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this I think he spit before he said his name. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Oh, eureka moment, Demetrius. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence in whom all Asia and the world worship. Give me a break. What a, what a bunch of malarkey. That's all this is. Do you guys really think that Demetrius here is motivated by religious zeal? You really think he's motivated by his love for Artemis? He's not motivated by his love for Artemis. He's motivated by his love of money. And the Bible says that money, not just money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's fine. Money's great. As you've heard lots of pastors say, money's a great tool, but it makes a really sorry master. And it's the love of money. And I'm speaking to somebody's heart in this room today, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And we're gonna see that played out in the rest of our text today. Look now at verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. By the way, don't you know that Satan is the author of confusion? And so you see that he is now moving on the chessboard of Acts. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, Paul is I tell you, he's so fearless. He wants to go into the stadium and address this crowd and a bunch of people who hate him. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, 
the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, okay? And so Asiarchs, if you have a study Bible at the bottom of your page, you'll see that these are high-ranking officers of the province of Asia. So everybody look at me. Paul had friends in high places. By the way, that's how he was able to teach for two years in the hall of Tyrannus because he had friends, influential friends in high places. By the way, isn't it interesting in God's sovereignty, when God calls, man, he always provides. He provides places, he provides provision, he provides relationships that we need in order to do the work of Christ. And he did it with Paul 2,000 years ago and he still does it today. And so the Asiarchs, these high-ranking officials, verse 31, who were friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some, okay, so Luke is giving us a glimpse into the stadium here. Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. And so Demetrius and the rest of the mob here, the rest of the angry silversmiths and craftsmen, they wanted revenge against Paul, but they couldn't find him. So what did they do? They grabbed two of his his buddies, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they literally violently dragged these guys to the local theater. Now, once again, if you go to Western Turkey, you're gonna see the remains of this amphitheater which sat 25,000 people. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, archeology span showing that the Bible stories are not myth, they're true. Once again, we see the rocks are crying out that this is God's word. By the way, how many of you guys believe that this is 100% God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word? Do you actually believe that? I hope you do. I mean, you're in a church, you got a Bible open, I hope. I hope you believe this is actually God's word. Don't believe the lies of the devil or the lies of liberal theologians who say it's filled with errors. It's not. There's always an explanation for every so-called contradiction. This is God's word. And so what we see here is that if you go to Turkey, you're gonna see the remains of the theater that's talked about here in Acts chapter 19. And so in that theater, it was filled up with 25 thousand plus people and they're there and they're it's a big huge confused emotional crowd and they don't even know most of them why they're there some are shouting one thing have you guys ever been to a a, a big stadium right and you remember remember you can hear the chants and the screaming and the crowd yelling and chanting or whatever right so that's what's going on in this theater some are chanting one thing Some are chanting another thing. As I was studying, I was just wondering if anybody in the stadium, if they started the wave, you know, it's like, oh, here it comes. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians or whatever is going on. Paul's outside, he's trying to get in. A Bunch of people are saying, no, don't do it. You get killed, Paul. And so it's absolute pandemonium. And it says now in verse 33, that some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a what? A Jew. Look at this, this is crazy. For about two 
hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now what's going on here? Well, in verse nine, what we find out is that there were some Jews in Ephesus who opposed Paul. They became stubborn. You guys remember this about three weeks ago. Paul was there in the synagogue of Ephesus and a lot of Jews believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but some Jews didn't. They became stubborn against Paul and his message and they began to speak evil of the way. And so apparently those Jews don't wanna be confused with Paul. And so what do they do? They push forward Alexander the Jew to stand before this huge crowd in this amphitheater to, to make a defense and to explain that they are different than the apostle Paul and his disciples. And so when Alexander goes, when this Jewish man tries to speak, the Gentile crowd finds out that he's a Jew and they shout him down. They won't let him talk. Why? Well, here's why. Number one, anti-Semitism, right? Which is still prevalent today. But number two, here's why. Because the polytheistic Gentiles knew that the monotheistic Jews never went to the temple of Artemis, never bought the little silver shrines of Artemis. Why? Because commandment number one, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Not just the Christians, but the Jews. And by the way, it started with the Jews. The Jews believe that and they hold that. They would never in a million years go to some pagan temple and buy some little trinket of some little multi-breasted idol. They would never in a million years. And so what happened is they saw the Jew trying to speak and this polytheistic Gentile paganistic crowd shouted him down for two hours. They're yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the local government in Ephesus gets worried. They know a riot's about to start and they don't want Caesar over in Rome to find out that there's a riot going on in Ephesus. And so they push in the city clerk, kind of like the town mayor, to go into the theater and address the people. We pick it up in verse 35. All right, so everybody look at verse 35. And when the town clerk, the mayor, had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, remember Gaius and Aristarchus? You have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are opened and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger. <laughs> you want Roman troops coming into Ephesus? You want us to lose our status as a free city? We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
And so the mayor here basically gives three statements to bring calm to the chaos. The first thing he says to this big crowd, 25,000 in the amphitheater is, hey guys, everybody knows the city of Ephesus that we as the Ephesians are the temple keepers of the great goddess Artemis. So that's not gonna change. Number two, there's no proof that these two guys that you drug in here, Gaius and Aristarchus, that they either committed sacrilege, which means they stole from the temple. Remember, it was also a bank. There's no proof that they stole anything. There's no proof that they blasphemed our goddess Artemis. And number three, if Demetrius over here and the silversmiths, if they have a dispute against anybody, the courts are open. We can handle this in a civil way. And apparently, the mayor's speech did the trick and everybody filed out of the stadium and went home. Now, how can we apply this really incredible story to our lives today. Well, if you're taking notes, here's your next fill-in. The problem in Ephesus was idolatry, which is still a major problem today. You know, we think of idolatry as kneeling down before some, you know, image or idol. So much more than that. And so, The problem in Ephesus was idolatry, which is still a major problem today. And so Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, is long gone. If you and your spouse want to go over to Western Turkey and check it out and and find Ephesus, good luck. It's not there. It was abandoned in the 15th century, or by the 15th century AD. If you go there, you're just going to find a pile of rocks archaeologists have uncovered. So Ephesus, long gone. Not only that, the temple of Artemis, you saw it, it's lying in ruins right now. And not only that, nobody today is over in Western Turkey crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and that broken down uh, theater, the picture I showed you a little while ago. Even so, idolatry is still a major problem in our culture. Even though nobody is shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Ladies and gentlemen, don't you know that in our culture today, so many thousands and thousands of people are crying out, great is whatever pop or movie star, right? Great is whatever pro athlete. Great is whatever famous politician. Great is whatever you fill in the blank, you know, public figure. And so what is idolatry? Make it very clear in your minds, idolatry is not bowing down or not only bowing down to some image. Idolatry is when we put anything or anyone above the Lord Jesus Christ. That's idolatry. And when someone has an idol, that idol is their God. And what they do is they idolize that idol. They try to find fulfillment in that idol. They try to find satisfaction in that idol. And they make that idol the center of their lives. And so even though no one today is idolizing Artemis of the Ephesians, plenty of people are idolizing the so-called stars or public figures. And the way I know that is the same way you know that. You see it in person whenever you go to a professional game or you go to a concert, you see it on TV, you see it at the movies. Whenever somebody in society sees a quote-unquote star, they freak out. They scream. We've all seen it on TV. Some, some young ladies get so enamored with whatever pop star, they scream and then they fall down and they faint. 
And it's like, what is going on here? They're human beings. I remember I grew up in the 70s. I grew up in Tampa and I loved soccer growing up. And so I would go to Tampa Stadium, at least the old one, the big sombrero. I'd go there for professional soccer games. And I remember one time I was at ground level in Tampa Stadium and I was standing against the concrete fence around the, uh, around the, the field watching a soccer game. And I guess the security cards didn't care that we were in our seats. Hey, it was the 70s. You could do whatever you want. There was no seatbelts and, you know, whatever. And so we're there and... You know, by the way, we've got our long hair and we got our real short shorts and whatever in the 70s. And we're watching this soccer game, me and my friends. And one of the, the professional players comes running by. And my friend put out his hand and the soccer player went like that and kept on going. And my friend looked at us. And he put his hand up and he said, I'll never wash my hand again. <laughs> Nothing's changed. What is it? 40 years later, 50 years, I'm old, wow. Nothing's, nothing has changed. Here, here's a newsflash, okay? Pop stars, movie stars, pro athletes, famous politicians, public figures, guess what? They all put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you. So what's all the fuss for? They're just human beings. Even though nobody today is trying to find fulfillment in Artemis, you know our culture, you live in it. So many people are trying to find fulfillment in wealth and material possessions, right? Oh, if I could only have the bigger house, if I could only have the fancier car, if I could only have that beautiful yacht, if I could only have a million dollars in the bank account, then I would be fulfilled. And they work so hard their whole lives and neglect so many close, important relationships and they become elderly people and their hearts are still as empty as ever. Newsflash, there's no fulfillment in money. There's no fulfillment in material possessions. You think we would have learned this. This is 2020. Why don't people just study history? But we make the same stupid mistakes generation after generation. You see, even though nobody's trying to find satisfaction in Artemis today, so many people are trying to find satisfaction in our culture, in sex, pornography, drugs, alcohol. Right? If I could only have one more hit of whatever drug, if I could only have one more sexual encounter with him or her, if I could only you know, look one more time at that immoral website, if I could only one more Friday night get plastered, you know, then, then I'd be satisfied. And what happens, ladies and gentlemen, is that one encounter or one experience turns to two, turns to five, 10, 20, 30, 50, and your heart is still as empty as ever, and your life's a wreck. Here's an idea. Turn to Jesus Christ. He'll fill you with his love, joy, peace, presence, and power. Why? Because he's God. He can do that. He's the true God. What is idolatry? It's putting anyone or anything above our relationship with Christ. We're trying to fill the void with all this stuff. And nothing's filling the void. 
You see, even though nobody is putting Artemis at the center of their life today, you know it, you live in our culture. So many people are putting self at the center of their lives today. I think the most prevalent form of idolatry in 2020 Western culture, the most prevalent form of idolatry is the idolatry of self. You've heard me say it before, as we idolize the three most important people, me, myself, and I. Get ready for the selfie. Right? That's our culture. It's all about me. And have you noticed it's creeping into the church? It's all about me. It used to be Christ is the center, right? And we're out here on the periphery, and we're supposed to be dying to self and taking up our cross and following Jesus Christ. That's the true gospel, but now everything's changed and now self is in the middle, right? It's all about me. And it's all about how I feel and what makes me happy, right? And how can I exploit this person in order to, to take advantage of them? And we become the center of our life. And we make decisions, ladies and gentlemen, not by going to the Lord, but we make decisions based on how does this make me feel? I hear it like almost every day. Go with your gut. Be true to yourself, right? Do what you feel. It's no no wonder our lives are a wreck. We were never meant to lead our own lives. We can't. And so God says, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. When you have a God, here's what you do. You submit to that God and you ask him for direction for your life. So listen to this. Idolizing public figures, attempting to find fulfillment in wealth and possessions, trying to find satisfaction in sex, drugs, and alcohol, and putting self at the center. Those are the idols that we celebrate in our culture and we prop them up, right, by social media posts, internet ads, TV shows, music, media. It's just pumped at us 24-7. But try this. Try to celebrate Jesus Christ. Try to worship Jesus Christ. Try to openly follow Jesus Christ and all of a sudden now you're a religious fanatic. Right? Turn to Christ in faith Get baptized, join a church, and start growing in your faith. And all of a sudden, friends and family members are whispering behind your back, he's lost it. She's lost it. No, we haven't lost anything. Because when you turn to Jesus Christ, you haven't lost anything. You've gained everything. Because Christ is the answer. I said it before, I'll say it again. Christ alone can give you the love, the joy, the peace, the perfect purpose, and the satisfaction that you and I and all of us are looking for. Why? Because he actually is God. God in the flesh, he could do it. And that's why we're not embarrassed as Christians to say, great is our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not embarrassed to say that because he is great and he is the Lord and he is Jesus, and he is the Messiah. 
And so if 25,000 people 2,000 years ago can stand in a stadium and shout for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I was thinking I was, as I was studying this week, wouldn't it be great if our church family just two or three times could shout out, great is our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys wanna do that? Okay, and so on the count of three, and it's great is our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So on the count of three, I'm gonna point at you. Don't just say it, shout it out two, three times. You ready? One, two, three. Great is our Lord Jesus Christ. Great is our Lord Jesus Christ. As loud as ever. Great is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now put your hands together and give him praise. Praise him. Worship him. Honor him. Adore him. Submit to him. He's the answer. Don't fall into any cheap imitation. None of it satisfies. None of it brings fulfillment. None of it can be the center of your life. And you shouldn't be idolizing any of it. It should be Jesus Christ. He's the answer. Christ came from the Father. Look, listen to this. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one, listen to this, one in being with the Father, through whom all things were made. That Christ, the true Christ, the biblical Christ, he came from the Father on a rescue mission to seek and save those who were lost. And we as Christians, guess what? He's our Lord, he's our God, and we're not gonna have any other gods before him. He's the answer. And so here's your final fill in the blank. Please don't ever forget this. Whether or not Christ is number one in our lives will not be determined primarily by what we say, even though I really enjoyed shouting out with you, great is our Lord Jesus Christ. But guess what? It will not be determined primarily by what we say, but how we what? How we live. See, that's where authenticity is. Anybody can say it. The question is, tomorrow are we gonna be living it when no one's watching? That's the question. Now, now here's what I wanna make sure everybody understands. I, I, wanna, I don't want anyone to misunderstand the fact. In fact, if you're with me now, say amen here. Okay, so, so listen. I don't want anyone to misunderstand the truth that salvation is a free gift from God. Listen to the word of God. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, and so you gotta come to your time, the, the point in your life where you realize you can't save yourself. Stop trying. You can't save yourself. We're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. You gotta come to your, the point in your life where you believe, where you believe that Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross, absorbed the wrath of God that you and I should have received in hell forever for our sins. That he, as we sang a little while ago with Pastor Aaron, paid it all. Because the wages of sin is death, Christ died in our place. 
He suffered, he died, he was buried. On the third day, he rose again. So he's alive right now. So we gotta come to the place where we stop trying to save ourselves, where we believe personally that Christ died in our place and rose again. And then we need to turn to him in faith, listen, and ask him to save us. Something the Holy Spirit spoke to me this week about was there's people who need to ask me to save them. Ask. It's a free gift. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you and ask him to save you. And guess what? He'll save you. You don't have to be real religious. Work your way to heaven. That's not the gospel. Ask and receive. And then when you do that, the Holy Spirit's gonna come in your heart, in your life. And then never forget the next verse. We always quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We always leave out verse 10. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so after you're saved, you guys heard me say that, right? After you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then prayerfully discover and do the works that he has for you. Each of you are individual. By the way, God loves each of you so much. He's got a specific plan for your life and you can discover and do those good works so that one day you get to heaven, we'll get in through the blood of Jesus, but we'll, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ because we were seeking his face and filled with the spirit and doing the works that he's called us to do at the judgment seat, we'll hear well done, good and faithful servant. 